Hello everyone and welcome back to series 10 of the Great Women Artists podcast. I am so excited to say that this series is supported by the Levitt Collection, a vast and varied art collection of which a major portion is dedicated to fantastic works by women artists. The Levitt Collection's support for women in the arts is such that preparations are in full swing for the creation of the new museum, FAM, F-A-M-M, which will be opening in June 2024 in Mougins in the south of France. It will be the first major museum in mainland Europe dedicated to solely female artists and will exhibit a myriad of artworks all from the collection. Impressionist, surrealist, modern and contemporary art created by women from around the world will take pride of place in the Levitt's new museum, Female Artists of the Mujan Museum. But in the meantime, stay tuned by following at fam.mujan and don't miss the beautiful book Abstract Expressionists, The Women, published by Morel, which presents a selection of works from the collection alongside richly illustrated essays by scholars Ellen G. Landau and Joan M. Marta, all available now. I hope you enjoy this episode. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Great Women Artists podcast with me, Katie Hessel. Some of you might know me from the Great Women Artists, an Instagram account I set up in October 2015, which celebrates female artists on a daily basis, ranging from young graduates to old masters. Well, in a similar fashion to the Instagram, this podcast is all about celebrating female artists from a variety of backgrounds and histories. And I'm so excited to be interviewing artists on their career or artists, writers, curators or general art lovers on the woman artist who means most of them. What I want this podcast to do is celebrate female artists in all different capacities so you, the listener, can gain a look into the greatest female artists working now or from art history. I am so excited to say that my guest on the Great Women Artists podcast is one of the most renowned artists alive today, Doris Salcedo. Born in Colombia, where she is based today, Salcedo is hailed for her mid to colossal scale sculptures and public installations that push the boundary of the art form while simultaneously addressing vital political narratives of Colombian history of conflict that also have the power to transcend both time and geographies. She challenges scale and perspective, materials and everyday objects, and although the physical breadth of her work can be extensive, humanity remains at the centre of it. As she has said, I address the experiences of those who dwell on the borders, on the periphery of life and in the depths of catastrophe. By incorporating materials that speak to the presence of a human being, whether it be chairs, desks, shoes or more, or working with people and the names of the innocent lives who are lost, Salcedo's work points to absence, memory, and mourning. Works have ranged from slotting and stacking 1,500 chairs between two buildings on an unassuming street in Istanbul to filling domestic items with cement, creating an atmosphere of silence. She has exhibited all over the world in the most acclaimed institutions worldwide, and in 2007, she showed at Tate Modern with a work called Shibboleth, which saw her excavate a crack into the concrete ground, which is also a work that could be viewed from multiple perspectives, which, when not looking properly, could easily be missed. And it's this idea of looking in Salcedo's work that I find so interesting, because by getting us to look further, she gets us to question beyond our everyday experiences, what we witness in the media, the futile lines that divide this world, to ensure for a fairer and more equal society. Doris Salcedo, welcome to the podcast. How are you doing today? Oh, thank you for inviting me. I'm doing fine. Thank you. 
So thank you so much for coming on. I don't think I talk about any artist's work as much as I talk about yours, because it can be so powerful when thinking about collective mourning, loss, absence and violence. And sadly, in our world today, as of late and in recent years, it's that that seems to dominate our headlines. I'm always amazed how you adopt materials from our everyday life, such as a chair or a shoe. But by stripping away the core functions, show us the absence in such a simple but effective way. And I can't help but be moved when I'm in front of your work. So I want to start by asking you, how do you hope for people to perhaps reflect when they're confronted by your work? The psychoanalyst, who is uh, also an Auschwitz survivor, Dori Lau, he said that when a victim tells her story, when the victim narrates what happened to her, what the testimony is, that testimony, in a way, is incomplete because it is lacking a listener. There is someone who starts to listen carefully. And it's in that moment when the victim and the listener get together, in that moment, the real testimony actually is consolidated. And to that couple, a third party should be invited which is the viewer of the work of art. So the viewer has to, at the same time, act as a witness who deeply listens whatever is the work is presented. So in a way, the work is not complete until the viewer deeply listens and deeply cares about what the victim has experienced. Yeah, I think that's so powerful and just is the core function of art as well and actually what art can do and, and, and sort of limitless possibilities of it as well. Like I said in the introduction, you work with objects that are often functional, but transform them into an artwork that transforms their entire meaning. I mean, why are you attracted to the medium of sculpture or installation as your chosen medium? I think for me as an artist, there weren't many aspects of my work that were not exactly a conscious decision. There are things that were always in me. Like I always knew that I wanted to be an artist and I always knew that I wanted to be a sculptor. And it is pretty much the same way when I decided what I'm going to work about. The next piece I'm going to be making is about what. Then it's something that is simply there. Life is so strong that it imposes things on you. And being a sculptor is one of those things. I think a sculpture is a medium that allows you to have an, an installation and in that way share in a deep sense the experience of the victim. Like you inhabit the same space and that allows for empathy if the viewer is willing to do that. So it is a physical object like yourself, like your own body in a real space encountering the thwarted life of a victim. Totally. I mean, I'm also fascinated by how you... I guess, merge that sort of very inhabiting space. It speaks to this idea of contradiction so much in your work, but also this idea of working with found objects or used materials. How does this method get us to contemplate different lives, past lives, the lives of the victim? Well, at the beginning, I was very strict. I set myself to be always obedient to the testimony of the victim. And in that testimony, there were words or there were objects that were given to me. I will turn these objects into a work of art. So when I was when I was young, the chairs I used were chairs given to me by victims, doors that I found in ghost towns, in towns that had, where people had been displaced and were abandoned, and I was allowed by some victims to take them, or the shoes that the families of the disappeared, of the missing people, gave me. 
So when I was younger, it was very, very, very important to me to work with that sense of truth. Nowadays, it's not so important for me because what counts now is not the truth of the place where the object comes from, but what counts to me now is the strength of the image. But it is always important that the object signals a specific situation that we, the viewers, lack. Yeah. And I think what's so strong in your work is this idea of the dichotomy, whether it be sort of with juxtaposing materials or different perspectives told from alternative, you know, away from the kind of patriarchal capitalist perspective, the individual versus the system, colossal versus minute. I mean, I'm interested in focusing on the latter. I mean, what draws you to kind of working on this large scale and and what can that impact allow for? Well, it allowed myself to be in zero. When I start a work, I try not to bring the knowledge that I have from my previous works. I try to always stand in a perspective that I never stand before. I'm always studying. So if I'm invited to a space, I try to respond to that space without all the baggage from my previous work. And I have, when I read about the number of victims, even though I'm working based on the story of one single specific victim. At the same time, there will be millions of people who have endured similar things all over the world. So it is something that is private, belongs to an individual, but at the same time, it belongs to thousands, in some cases, millions of individuals. If I'm talking about missing people that are all over the world, there must be millions of people who have been brutally and forcefully disappeared. If I'm thinking about displacement, we know at least 30 million people have been displaced. If we talk about slave, contemporary slave work, there are also millions of people who are suffering. And yet I focus on the experience of one. So that's why I go from extreme detail to a huge installation that tries to encompass the experience of all this fragment of humanity that is enduring these terrible conditions. It's always extreme. From the feeling that a little girl might have felt to what it means to humanity as a whole. And so it always goes back and forth from the collective to the individual. I think that's why I've continued to look at your work for the entirety of my adult life and apply it to things that are going on. Because I think when we watch the headlines and we consume all this news and information the whole time and we see numbers, it's always numbers. And actually what we need to do is focus on the individual. And actually sometimes the headlines can be so crass that actually as viewers, sometimes we can become numb to it because in a way it overwhelms us. And actually what art can do is it can focus on that one individual and it can make us think, Someone's life is being affected here, someone just like us. Absolutely. And only art can do that because art can show us a perspective that we would have never taken. It places you in sites that you never were interested or never thought of. It shows you the world landscape that you decide not to look at because people feel more confident when they ignore brutality. If you ignore what is happening, then you are not responsible. You're free of responsibility because you didn't know. In our time, people seek ignorance actively in a way 
They feel relief from responsibility. So when the work of art teaches you or shows you a perspective that you decide to avoid, it is showing you a very important aspect of life. And maybe that means the connection, the empathy that you lack before. The headlines, as you said, are overwhelming, but art can show you the pain. Walter Benjamin, she spoke about little images, how memory is created on layers and layers and layers of little images. So I think art can show you a little image or thousands of little images. A single work of art can do that. And the viewer will choose which of these little images will connect with. And maybe searching his or her own memory of pain. We all have these little moments or little images in our memory of, of painful moments that we experience. And maybe those, those images that Benjamin said we all have in our memory, maybe those can encounter and create empathy and create solidarity and simple recognition that a human life is being lost and what it means. And also this idea of how important perspective is as well in terms of making sure we also hear from a range of artists because we need all those perspectives as well and all those experiences you know in a way art is a kind of microcosm for the rest of the world i think the experience of every human being is very important but obviously the experiences from the global south have not been heard and have always been taken for granted so I think it is important that nowadays you find a whole lot of artists from the global south who are telling stories that are important not only to the global south, but to the global north. Because unfortunately, in the past, we used to believe that the global south, that if we behave properly, we will develop and become first world and achieve progress. But unfortunately, what we are seeing is that the first world is underdeveloping. So the inequalities, the violence, and the extreme authoritarian governments that in the past were part of the Global South, right now we see it in the Global North. The President Trump, for example, shows that the First World is underdeveloping quickly. So the experiences that we have of pain, of catastrophe, of chaos, I think are very useful for the entire world. And we have that experience. So I think it's worth paying attention to the art that is being made all over the world, because there are experiences that might be useful to everyone, including the Global North. I think that's so brilliantly put. And I'd love to go back and to your beginnings with art as well. I mean, you were born in 1958 in Bogota in Colombia. I mean, tell me about your upbringing. What was it like? Was art present in your life? Yeah, there were very few museums in Colombia at that time, but the very little that was shown, I had access to. My mother would take me to see shows, and since the only thing that I seemed to be interested in was drawing, I started taking drawing lessons at age six. So art has been always present for me. And at the same time, politics were important, because also... When you live in a society that is violent, that is going through a civil war or an armed conflict, you're forced to take sides. You're forced to think. The reality is something that is pressing and that it gives shape to who you are. The social context is far more defining in the third world, in the global south, than it might be in a rich town in Europe. So art and politics were always present for me. Yeah. And I mean, you continued to study in Colombia and completing in 1980. I mean, tell me about this experience. So when you were actually studying art, what did you become interested? Because I'm also aware that you were taught under Beatrice Gonzalez as well. Yeah. 
I study fine arts, and at the same time, Beatriz Gonzalez had a school for art history. We were trained to give gallery talks, but we were studying 19th and 20th century art, but in a really serious manner. And studying art history for me was essential because it was an in-depth study, and it helped me understand art in a profound way. Of course, it was only uh, Western art. But in a way, theory was more important for me than the art studio classes. I think that defined my way of working because it means that I have to be informed, not only the, the making, but the thinking was defined at that time. So thought was presented to me from very early on as the main tool for making art. But you then moved to New York City to complete an MFA at New York University in 1984. I mean, why move here? And what was that like to go somewhere like that? Well, it was essential because at that time, of course, there was no internet and there was very little access to contemporary art, almost none. So if you wanted to know about contemporary art, you had to learn English, you have to read and go to the global north where books and museums and exhibits were possible because here it was not possible. It was almost unexistent. So it was an essential requirement. No matter where you are in the world, you might be, I don't know, in Ghana, in Colombia, in Guatemala, in Burundi, wherever you are in the world, you have to understand that there is more than that. So wherever you are, you have, to, you have to go and check and study and think and understand that if you are in the global south, there is a canon that is imposed on us, a Western canon. So whatever element that you bring from your culture it was completely destroyed by imperialism. There's no way I can say, oh, there is a Colombian tradition from pre-Columbian art that's gone because those cultures were entirely destroyed. So we have to accept that the canon, the Western canon, is part of us. I mean, I'd love to know, you know, what artists you did begin to look at and how, I guess, your experience in your life so far, kind of how everything sort of culminated at that point in terms of what you wanted to make. I was focused on one single artist who was just a voice. And for me, the whole idea of an artist that was able to think of a sculpture as social sculpture was such an important idea that it defined all of my work. I devoted my time to study his work very, very carefully and deeply. And I think from then on, I start working. It was certainly my point of departure. And did you return to Colombia afterwards? And at what point did you want to make your work political? I think I was making sort of political drawings since I was a small girl. Nothing outside of the political realm interests me because for me the political is life itself. It's the way life is governed, is, is lived. But I thought that even though at the time was not clear that one could be an artist from the Global South, I decided to return here because that was the story I wanted to tell. I wanted to speak from here and about here. So that's why I decided to return right away. And I mean, then you went on to make works such as Unland, The Orphan's Tunic in 1997. I mean, I'm fascinated, you know, this idea of using furniture and filling these domestic objects with cement and, and combining them with unrelated pieces. So they're in a way rendered dysfunctional, even though they were functional. I mean, when did the idea of memory begin to interest you and, and how did you go about executing that? 
If you want to talk about a life that is lost, all that remains is memory because the life is gone, because the person is no longer here. So the only way for that, the presence of that life that was destroyed to be in the present tense is through your memory. My memory, what the families remember or became the work itself. So it was implicit. It was an essential element of what I was doing because what you see in the Colombian war or in the many wars we are witnessing now is that the destruction of life is, is obscene. I mean, the numbers of, of, of life that are being destroyed on daily basis is just so painful. So we need to stop and remember one life, at least, of the thousands that are being murdered every day, at least one that can give us the idea of what a complete life is like. A whole universe, every life is a world, is a universe in itself. So trying to recover aspects of that life through memory is absolutely essential to give value to the life of all of us. And this idea of using an everyday object, but kind of turning it on its head. I mean, you know, I, I look at your work and I'm sitting on a chair right now. And that gets me to think, or when I talk about your work with lots of people, I always say, you know, we're sitting on a chair right now. And what does it mean to actually kind of remove the function of that object and use an everyday object, but turn it on its head, such as Unland and the orphan's tunic to almost squash it with cement? The orphan's tunic is a piece made out of human hair, silk, and two tables that are joined together, that are stitched together with human hair. At the time, I was interviewing children who had witnessed the murder of their parents. And I was visiting a small girl who was wearing this dress that was far too small for her. And she was washing this dress and wearing it, even though she could not even close it any longer. And, and then she said that it was the dress that her mother had made for her right before she was murdered. And so I start thinking of the orphan's tunic. And the only thing this girl had was her own body to remember. So that's why human hair becomes an essential part of this piece. So I try to put all that together a table that cannot be used because it has human hair on it, or a chair that cannot be used because concrete is being put on it. These elements emphasize the lack of normality where a family can sit together around a table or the absence of a person who used to sit in a chair next to us. So I believe it is essential to turn these objects into dysfunctional objects to emphasize the, the absence of a loved one. And of a normal life. And this idea of this kind of union of disparate elements as well, this idea of putting these materials together that really make no sense. I mean, what is it about these unions and contradictions, whether it be man-made versus handmade, or how do you strike these sort of paradoxical dichotomies between the urban and the natural, the individual and the system? In terms of the concrete and the furniture, well, concrete is a brutal element. There's nothing you can say after one. There's no, nothing you can do to save even an object from concrete because it is so brutal. And I wanted to impose that element of, of silence. But, but also I think it's important to think that every time we're talking about art, we're talking about 
paradoxical elements. So in a way, this concrete, even though destroys the element and renders it dysfunctional, at the same time, in a weird way, it preserves the object. Uh, so I think this ambivalent character of the materials is also important in order to make a work of art that is truly paradoxical and by being paradoxical embraces different lives and different perspectives and different points of view. I'm always so fascinated as well by the way that, in a way, so much of your work also, whether it is, if it's not a sort of physical sculpture, it also exists in our memory. And it's also oftentimes ephemeral because it's an installation that has been put up and, you know, non-permanently or something. I mean, I'm so intrigued by November the 6th and 7th from 2002, which commemorated the 17th anniversary of the violent seizing of the Supreme Court in Bogota. I mean, why create this work in 2002 and why place it on the Palace of Justice? What kind of atmosphere did you want to create with it? I returned to Colombia from New York in 1985, and I was working two blocks away from the Palace of Justice when I heard gunshot. Then I ran to the main square of Bogota, and I thought that a real battle was beginning to develop. I was a witness to an act of war, and I kept obsessively keeping every single newsprint article Finally, 10 years later, I decided that I wanted to make a permanent installation at the National Museum using some of the remaining objects that had um, survived the fire and the attacks. And I was censored. I was really brutally censored. And for years, I tried to have access to objects that that had survived, as I I said before, the, the fire of the building, and I was never allowed to use anything. So for many, many years I tried, and I finally I decided, okay, I'm not going to be allowed to use anything. All the objects had been slowly but surely destroyed. And so 17 years afterwards, you made an installation where you lowered chairs onto the facade of this building, according to the autopsies that you had, and according to the time in which each person had died. It took a total of 53 hours, as if to mirror the time of the battle, the duration of the battle. What is it about working with people or in a certain time span as well that you're interested in? I'm so fascinated by this idea of memory, like I said, because so much of your work either exists in images or in the memory of people's head. And what is it about having people participate in your work that you're drawn to, to make it an event? Oh, it is extraordinary. In 2016, there was a referendum to approve or reject a peace treaty that will ensure peace in Colombia. And to our surprise, people chose war over peace. And I felt a, a terrible mourning. I was, I was mourning my hopes for peace, my hope for a better world, for a better Colombia. So I went out to the main square of Bogota and I made an open call for people to stitch together thousands of shrouds that had written with ashes the names of 0.7% of the fatal victims that the conflict had left. And more than 10,000 people came out to help me make this piece. I only have permission to use the square for 12 hours. And it was a huge piece, so we have to stitch kilometers and kilometers of stitches in order to make this huge shroud that cover the main square of Bogota. And I think the piece 
is the collaboration with the people. I just make a, a, a suggestion. As an artist, I give tool for people to express their pain. It is in the moment that it becomes public and collective that these pieces get their strength. So I, I wouldn't say it's my work, it's a collective work. And in moments where the society needs to express this pain, it is very important to come up with these suggestions for people to participate in a profoundly respectful and, and, and serious manner. Those events are absolutely extraordinary for me. It's maybe part of my work that I treasure the most. And has some of this work also resulted in political change? I mean, is that also part of it as well? I wish, but it is impossible. I don't think that a work of art can bring political change. It would be wonderful if it did, but I don't think it does. It doesn't save a life. It doesn't heal a wound. Art brings something different. Maybe symbolic justice? We work in the realm of the symbolic. But also I think it's that emotion. Your art can change the world in the sense that it can change people's thinking. I always talk about your work the whole time because of the way that I wish people in power looked at it. Oh, yeah. Because I think that it can teach us so much. I mean, you mentioned earlier this idea that a scar is a wound and it's going to be a wound forever. And I think it's so poignant. You know, I saw your work Shibboleth. I was about 13 when I was at Tate Modern. And what I love about it is that it's still today you can see the outline of that crack. Yeah, I, I, I agree with you. Art can change people's mind. You need a person willing to do it for it to happen. And I think art lends its influence. Like if a teacher sees a work of art and the teacher finds that interesting, maybe that experience can be changed, can be uh, expanded to the group of, of students. I mean, little by little, it works person by person, one by one. So it, it takes forever because usually the ones who are in power are unwilling to listen. They are not the ones who visit art shows. They are not the ones who participate in public memory acts, uh, like the ones I make in Bogota. But you are right. I mean, even though art cannot save a life, as I said before, it had the ability to re-enter the lives of those who were expelled from the human genre, re-enter them into the sphere of the human. And that life, as I said before, can acquire poetic and symbolic justice, but not judicial justice. I mean, I think art is one of the most important subjects in the world. And I think that people need to take time to reflect because also I think of something like your work for the Istanbul Biennial in 2003. I mean, I post that work on my Instagram pretty much the whole time because I just think it's so powerful in the sense that I don't think it's humanely possible for someone to look at that and not see violence and mourning and loss and destruction. You made that work in 2003. It was installed at that time. But the way that it's spoken to events since... I'm thinking about what we're witnessing now in Palestine. I thought about it during COVID. I thought about it with Russia, Ukraine. I mean, did you think that a work like this would speak to so many events to come? No, I don't think of my work in those terms. When I make the work, I think that, that I'm making the work for a person. And usually it's one single person. And then I go a step beyond, and that is for all people who have endured that particular crime. But... My mind is with the victim. It's a dialogue with the victim. And in a way, the victim has given me her testimony and I'm giving her the work. So it is, it is an exchange between us. 
And my ambition is not to reach uh, the entire world. My ambition is to be truthful and faithful to the testimony of the victim. I have a task that has been given to me, and that is my mission. And I see it in those terms. In those terms might sound kind of religious, but that's how strong I feel it. I'm obliged to respond to what has been given to me. And I don't go out of that space. I think what you said that, you know, you make your work for the person. And in a way, it shows us that we're all just people in the world. And actually, when something like Shibboleth, this work that was a huge crack in the middle of Tate Modern's turbine hall floor, but this idea that these futile lines that keep societies apart. And at the end of the day, we need to recognize that we're all just people. <laughs> I know that sounds really obvious, but your work makes us realize that. No, it's not obvious. It's not obvious at all. That's why Walter Benjamin was always repeating that that we are nothing but a, a fragile human being. Yes, that's what we are. Small, fragile human beings. That's why we have to take care of life, because it's so fragile and we're so little. We need friends, we need companions, we need hands, we need the society to take care of all of us. For a person in Europe, for example, there are many hands taking care of, of that person. People are growing food, people are packing and making bread, people are taking care of sewage system, people are making beds. I mean, there are many, many hands taking care of those lives. But in other parts of the world, if you think, for example, of a migrant lost in the middle of the sea, they have nothing. And there's not one single hand taking care of that person. We need to recognize that we're little and that we need each other and that we need society to take care of ourselves and that we need to take care of everybody else. I hope my work can show that. But it is all these little aspects that have to be added to the life. If you leave a baby by yourself, the baby will die. You need care, which means hands and hands and hands, human beings, lots of human beings taking care of each other. We've all got hands and you sort of put in such an effective way, very simple tools that we have in the world. If, if we just sort of stop for a minute and we just reflect what we have in our bodies and what we can do with that and the amazing things that we can do with our hands, because we built this world with our hands. We built stories with our hands. We built art with our hands. We, we built beauty and so many amazing things. How do you think we can use art as a tool in times of crisis? I think it is our responsibility to show that the crisis is happening because that's the first step to acknowledge what is happening. The first thing to fix something is to acknowledge the fact that it is broken. So this very damaged world needs a lot of fixing. And I think art can show us how to fix it. What we are saying, what art is saying, is always plural. And some aspects of it can be accepted by some people and some accepted by other people, and some can simply be rejected. But we cannot give one single totalitarian truth. Therefore, we cannot give a simple answer to the question that you pose, for example. Because if you give one single answer to that question, then you're giving a totalitarian approach to life. Wow. Doris Salcedo, thank you so much for this incredible conversation. We always end our podcast by asking our guests, if there was a woman artist working now or from history who you'd most like to meet, who would it be and what would you say to them? Oh, my God. Oh, there are so many, so <laughs> many important women. I, I cannot single out one. All I would like to say to all of them is that, that we are here, that we have endured 
the female perspective has a lot to give to this world, that our capacity to care and to give to others is the greatest tool we have. And we learn from them and thank to what they do, we do exist and they open spaces for us. And I hope we can open more spaces for all the people in the future. Amazing. Doris Salcedo, thank you so much for coming on the podcast today. Thank you so much. Thank you all so much for listening to this episode of the Great Women Artists podcast with the fantastic Doris Salcedo. I am really in awe of her work and think it is vital at a time like now. As always, I have linked to everything in the show notes so you can learn more. This episode was sound edited by the brilliant Nardis Millage. And thank you all so much for listening to this episode of the Great Women Artists podcast with me, Katie Hessel. Katie Hessel.